Well, good, uh, good afternoon. We're going to start uh, pretty promptly because I'm afraid that um, we are fairly tight on time today because uh, some teaching takes place here after this session, so we have to wind up promptly at 1.30, which means it's incumbent on me to be extremely brief in my introductions, which is easy to do because Nick Stern is well known to everybody here, uh, has been back at the school for three years. Is it three years now? Two Two and a bit. Two and a bit, yes. Um, as a professor after being in government and, of course, producing the seminal report on climate change. There is no doubt that this is a terrifically good moment to get an update from Nick because there may be people who still deny that the planet is heating up, but there's nobody who denies that the climate change political debate is heating up. And with the meetings this week in New York where Nick was, and of course the preparations for Copenhagen, uh, we are moving towards a really important inflection point in this whole debate. And Nick is extremely well placed to tell us how things are, having just flown back yesterday. Uh, so he's going to talk to us for 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for questions after that. Nick. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Howard, and um, I'm relying on you to stop me at around that time so that we can have a uh, to and fro. But first, let me begin by um, uh, thanking um, the International Growth Centre for putting all this together and thanking uh, DIPID, who is the primary sponsor of um, the International Growth Centre, for what I think is an extremely important initiative. Um, I also would like to say that uh, there are lots of people here I don't know, but there are quite a few people here I haven't seen for ages who I'm delighted to uh, see here. Uh, you know who you are, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to have a word um, afterwards. Now, the title that uh, I was given and which I accepted uh, with cheerfulness was Green Growth. And that is uh, in large measure what I will talk about, but I will talk about it in particular also. If I say in particular also, it's not very good, but I will talk <laughs> about it uh, also from the perspective of the um, recent movements that we've seen over these last uh, few weeks. So I do think we're seeing strong signs of movement. Whether they will be strong enough and fast enough, I have my doubts, but at least they're in the right direction and of substance. And I think we all approach this as the International Growth Centre from an understanding that <clears throat> the two defining challenges of this 21st century are overcoming poverty and managing climate change. If we fail on one, we fail on the other. Um, climate change um, will, if unmanaged, rewrite the planet to such an extent that uh, development will not only, not only be stopped, it will also be uh, reversed with very profound effects on the, uh, all, the all the nations of the world. If on the other hand we try to manage climate change by placing obstacles to development for these next two or three decades when we are seeing quite strong progress in overcoming poverty. If we try to manage climate change in that way we will fail and we will deserve to fail to put together the coalition of all nations, which is fundamental to combating climate change. So I think we succeed or fail on those two things together. Fortunately, um, I think if you look carefully and have, uh, are endowed with an optimistic nature, um, then I think you can argue, and I will argue, that we will be successful if we put our mind to it and if we get together and if we collaborate in rising to those two challenges together. Now, in all this, because it's absolutely fundamental to any analytical basis of this story, we have to begin by understanding the risks and the magnitude of the risks that we run. Much of economic analysis of climate change went badly wrong for a while, not all of it, of course, but much of it because it didn't take on board the magnitude of the risks that are at issue. This is a risk management issue of um, an enormous scale, a bigger scale than the, uh, we've seen in, really in any other policy in the past. 
Let's just go through the very simple arithmetic of that. I will ask you to do mental arithmetic as we go along during the course of the lecture. Those of you who want to use a pencil and paper are free to do so, but you ought to be able to do this, much of this in your head. Now, we are around 435 parts per million of CO2 equivalent. That's CO2 plus the other Kyoto greenhouse gases. We're adding about 2.5 parts per million a year, and that 2.5 is rising. A century of that would be adding well over 300 parts per million. The 435 would go to something like 750 or more. Even if we stopped it right there, what would that imply? It would imply sometime towards the end of this century or the beginning of next, uh, temperature increases uh, relative to pre-industrial times, 19th century is the base we usually use, uh, at 5 degrees centigrade. The world hasn't been at 5 degrees centigrade above mid-19th century since the Eocene period about 30 million years ago. We humans have been around for maybe 200,000, and that's actually quite a generous notion of sapiens in uh, Homo sapiens. We haven't been around for about 200,000. We've been around for about 200,000. This is a, a 30 million rollback in the experience of the planet, not, of course, of humans. We have experienced 5 degrees or so lower very recently, 10, 12,000 years ago, the last ice age. What do we see? People moved. Uh, there were quite a lot of people around. I mean, nothing like now, but there were people around 10 or 12,000 years ago. They lived closer to the equator than the ice sheets. Five degrees centigrade, we cannot describe with great accuracy, but we can describe the kind of risks. It looks as though much of southern Europe would become like the uh, Sahara Desert. There would be many highly populated parts of the world that would be inundated. Uh, the flows, both the geographical location and the, uh, the way in which the water flows uh, in terms of times of year and so on, uh, would likely to be radically rewritten. Of great importance to the big rivers of the world that rise in the Himalayas. Um, the Indian monsoon would probably change dramatically. We don't quite know how. Of course, many people are studying that. These are changes which redefine the geographical and historical reason for being where people are. This is climate change. It's change. And it's the change that's absolutely fundamental. No amount of uh, long-run general equilibrium stories of location theory, which some of us worked on in our youth, actually capture the notion of change. This is movement on an incredibly rapid scale in historical time. The movement of hundreds of millions of people um, in periods of decades. That would be, I'm talking about this, this, particularly the second half of this century, but um, it's already happening before that, and Mauritius, as you know, is making plans already for its relocation. And that's on 0.8 degrees centigrade. The risks that we run are very much higher than that. So that scale of risk is fundamental to any serious economic analysis of this problem. You cannot assume that we're on a basic growth path around which there'll be perturbations of a few percent. That is not the story. This is a story of um, a risk of a rewriting of the relationship between human beings and the planet and thus the potential movements of hundreds of millions of people and that would surely, if the history of the last 200 years tells us anything, uh, be a, a story of severe, prolonged and global conflict. So that's starting with the stakes for which we're playing. All I'm doing is rehearsing for you the basic uh, probabilistic outcomes of the uh, general climate models which, um, research science, which uh, climate science research institutes have produced around the world, but translated that into the kind of impacts that we might expect to see. It's not easy to have any serious quantification of the kind of effects that we're talking about, but we can at least understand something of the magnitude of the risks involved. So what should we do? As my Indian friends always say, what to do? And uh, well, there's so much that we can do. But we have to start by understanding the scale of reduction in um, emissions and thus of concentrations that will be necessary. So that's the next thing I want to say is to indicate the kind of targets 
that we need to have to substantially reduce those risks. So I'm going to talk about uh, bringing that probability of 5 degrees centigrade down from something like 50% to something like 1 or 2%. doesn't take that risk away, but it very substantially reduces it. You can express this in different kinds of ways. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the scientists have spoken about holding temperature increases to 2 degrees centigrade. That is only ever a probabilistic uh, statement, and sometimes they talk about a 50-50 chance of holding to uh, 2 degrees centigrade. The numbers I'm going to suggest that we focus on here, which do involve very big change, might give us a 50-50 chance of holding under 2 degrees. My guess is it wouldn't quite give us a 50-50 chance of holding under 2 degrees. It's not as strong as that. So the numbers I'm going to give you would be criticized by many of my scientific friends uh, of not being ambitious enough. But uh, I'm going to try and keep the numbers simple. So if we uh, want to give ourselves a decent chance of those kinds of probabilities of holding below uh, two, 2 degrees centigrade, increased temperatures, then we have to do something like this. The, the 435 or so of CO2 equivalent where we are now, we have to prevent that rising much above 500, and then we have to think about how we bring it on down from there. Bringing it on down from there, given how long CO2 lasts, is a very, very long-run story, unless we get good at pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere. We might get good at that, and we should certainly invest in understanding how we might get good at pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But you wouldn't want to bet the planet on uh, the outcome of that kind of investment. But you do want to make that kind of investment. And those of you, there may be some people here who saw um, Klaus Lackner's uh, talk on uh, artificial trees at uh, Imperial. Um, day before yesterday. Some very good scientists working on it. We simply don't know how far uh, that will go, but it is worth investing in it. But meantime, uh, we have to in talk about bringing down the concentrations by reducing net emissions. What do we have to do then? Well, we're 50 in our... Here, I'm going to give you three numbers, which is the first three numbers in the six numbers of a global deal. Uh, you can get the, the current draft of the Copenhagen talks is over 200 pages. I think you can get it on one, and that's what I'll describe as I, uh, as I go along. Uh, one based on six numbers. Here are the first three of the six numbers. 50 gigatons uh, CO2 equivalent is more or less where we are now. That's not particularly controversial. That's a description, but it's an important way to start in terms of flows of CO2 equivalent a year, 50 in 2010. We have to be uh, down around 20 gigatons uh, in uh, 2050, and most descriptions of the path from here to there, which is not a linear path, but it peaks and then comes down, would be 35 for 2030. So 50, 35, 20 yeah, are as flows which are necessary for reducing the risks to the kind of levels I just described. So. 50 in 2010, 35 in 2030, 20 in 2050. And let me underline that that's seen by many scientists as not ambitious enough, but uh, it's, uh, they're round numbers, and I'm going to try and avoid decimal points in everything I have to say. Let's keep it to round numbers. We would have to uh, peak sometime before 2020. We'd have to peak in the next uh, 10 years. What does 20 gigatons look like in terms of per capita for people? We'll be around 9 billion people in uh, 2050. There seem to be an increasing number of um, contributions to this debate associated with increasing death rates in order to bring down population. That's not the uh, subject of my talk. Um, we'll be around 9 billion. I'm just taking the UN uh, figures uh, here of uh, forecasts, I should say. Now, 20 divided by 9 is just over 2. 20 gigatons, where we need to be maximum in 2050, divided by 9 billion people, remembering that giga and billion are the same, uh, is uh, just over 2. We need to be around 2 tons per capita then. There won't be many people above 2 tons, sorry, there won't be many people below 2 tons per capita, so there can't be many people above 2 tons per capita. The average is the average. 
Now, this isn't Lake Wobegon where all the children are above average. The average is the average. And uh, uh, given that there really won't be many people that low, there can't be many people much above. That is not the same, and I may I probably better postpone this to question time, but that is not the same as an emissions permit allowance. I, the emissions permit allowance, a discussion of that, depends on many things, including notions of equity and historical responsibility. My own view is that the emission allowances for the rich countries should be naught, naught for some considerable time, given the history of the story and given what they're still doing, given just basic notions of uh, income and wealth inequality. But that's another story. In saying that everybody should be around two, I'm talking about actual emissions, not emissions rights. They're linked subjects, but they're not the same subject. But that's roughly where we have to be. United States, about 25 plus now, tons per capita. Australia, Canada, something similar. Most of Europe and Japan, around 10, 12. And uh, India, below 2, about 1.7. China, about 6. And much of sub-Saharan Africa, below 1. So the challenge of getting down to 2 is tough. But I think we can do it, and I'll discuss how we might. The, um, that number two also gives an intellectual underpinning for the 80% reductions that we talk about by rich countries, 1990 to 2050. I mean, just take Europe. That would be um, taking 10 or 12 down to two. Of course, 80% reduction is dividing by five. 10 or 12 divided by five is just around or just over two. So that 80% number is not a number that somehow is sort of slapped down from the point of view of some arbitrary um, um, construction. I mean, it does have the logic in looking at where we have to go. That's the fourth number in the sixth number story of the global deal. 80% um, reductions, at least, by rich countries um, 1990 to 2050. Now, you would have noticed that the United States, because I just told you, that the United States is around 25 tons per capita. To get from 25 down to 2, you will also have noticed you have to divide by at least 10. So when Barack Obama declared that the United States would cut by 80% 1990 to 2050, what he really meant to say was 90%, but... Um, <laughs> The contrast with his predecessor is so delightful and overwhelming that it would be very churlish, I think, at this stage to uh, quarrel with um, that particular uh, ambition. And, of course, you know, as you get going, as you learn about these things, those differences, um, our perception of those differences will change because we'll see much more clearly t ten years from now about how to do these things. So it's not worth fussing too much about that at this moment, and 80%, I think, reductions by uh, rich countries, 1990 to 2050, is absolutely fundamental, not only to the equity of a global deal, and actually from equity you can argue more strongly, but from the feasibility of a global deal, of actually getting to two tons per capita as an actual emissions story. Now, um, so basically, from the point of view of risk management, we know roughly where we need to go, and the basics of the targets are actually shared and understood. You know, at the G8 and G5 summits, the 50% reductions for the world, 1990 to 2050, are basically uh, in the language that the G8, G5 leaders are using, and of course more generally than G8 and G5. The 80% reductions have broadly been accepted in, uh, in you know, US, Europe, and, and Japan. So, that kind of language in terms of, well, not just language, those kinds of numbers that we're using, I think, are now in the system, of course. Delivery and doing something quickly and not just talking about 2050 is very important. What do we have to do? And I, on this part of my talk, I'm going to be very quick because I want to go to where the global deal might go and to focus on the idea of green growth. But what we have to do is, of course, in the essence of what green growth means, so um, it can't go unremarked.
The first thing is, uh, well, three big areas of action, all of which we understand and are increasing our understanding of and we'll learn a tremendous amount about along the way. Energy efficiency, low-carbon technologies, and stopping uh, deforestation, and indeed where we can to start to our forest and reforest. So those are the three big areas of action. Tremendous potential in energy efficiency. Uh, McKinsey's has done a lot of work on that, but actually people have been demonstrating just how much they can get out of energy efficiency. I mean, one very big, um, often quoted example, but it is important, is that uh, DuPont uh, took out uh, two billion a cost on energy by just focusing on the issue. The idea that we have in economics of the uh, all-knowing, perfectly managed uh, firm, aware of all the information about itself and all the technologies that are available, minimizing cost is okay as a benchmark, but it's a bit far-fetched as a description of what firms actually do. So when a firm like DuPont focuses attention on cutting energy out and the instruction from the manage, management goes on cutting energy out, they save two billion a year. So looking for things actually is uh, the first step to finding them. And often we see, uh, you know, time is short, our attention is diverted, we don't look closely enough at what's possible. There's a great deal that can be done by energy on energy efficiency, and there's a great deal that good policy can do to help. Now, part of the reason people don't have double glazing is the thought of having another builder in their house drives them absolutely nuts. I mean, hassle is a big factor. Information is a big factor. Finance is a big factor. On all these things, you can uh, talk about policy. Low-carbon technologies are going to be absolutely fundamental. We're never going to get to two tons per capita without zero-carbon electricity in the world by 2050. It just won't be possible to do it. And, uh, but we, we do know. We do know how to do low-carbon or zero-carbon electricity already, and we're going to learn a lot more along the way. And, uh, for example, in the last two or three years, the capital cost of solar has been absolutely crushed. It's still got to come down a lot further, but it's coming down very rapidly. Why? Partly economies of scale and partly uh, research on different kinds of um, technologies. And let's not kid ourselves that this is all happening in the rich world, the biggest uh, producer of solar panels and uh, moving more and more high-tech is uh, SunTech in, uh, in China. So low-carbon technology is going to be absolute, of absolutely fundamental importance and, of course, stopping deforestation. I haven't got time to go into the deforestation story in any detail, but it is something that is of huge importance in which many of us are very closely involved. But in thinking about the low-carbon technologies, don't just think about electricity. The, um, uh, in the UN meeting which uh, took place on uh, Tuesday, uh, there was a uh, so-called leadership forum which was mostly people from industry. Just the one table that I was chairing, just ten people on it, not all of whom were for industry, but most of them. The examples were quite extraordinary. There was a guy from Italy who is making um, seeding uh, drills which largely work um, under the surface of the soil but with minimum disturbance of the soil. And he was arguing that from uh, low-till agriculture of the kind that they were putting together, which can be done less capital intensively than they were doing it, um, saves about 1.5 tonnes per hectare. That's about a car for a year. Yeah? This is not small, this stuff. And what's more, it increases productivity and saves water. Yeah? So that's just one example. There was a, um, a guy who started speaking with a Russian accent, and I thought with all my prejudices about the high energy use in Russia, I thought, oh dear. And uh, he was describing how his logistics company had taken out huge amounts of energy in, uh, in, in, in his business of moving, uh, moving stuff around. Um, biomass uh, with carbon capture and storage will actually be a uh, negative carbon way of uh, doing things. Um, you go now to seminars, and I, one seminar I went to, there was a guy with a bottle of, with a, with a glass of green liquid. And it, he did the theatre very well, you know, you, what, what are you doing with this glass of green liquid? And he was talking about the use of, um, and development of algae as a, uh, as a biofuel. 
and just to show that uh, it uh, wasn't dangerous, at the end of the talk he drank the... Uh, <laughs> um, but so what I want to do is to, 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 to just give you a feeling for the incredible dynamism out there in terms of new ideas. Probably more than half are mad, but, you know, we don't need, we don't need a very high percentage. Ten, 20% of these things uh, working can make a huge, huge uh, difference. And it's happening right across the spectrum of activity. I just insulated my um, 15th century farmhouse in Sussex with stuff that was like that, which performed much, much better than the stuff I'd used in my previous house, which was like that. Um, you're seeing technological progress in windows, technical logical progress in all different kinds of roofing, in public transport, in managing the uh, infrastructure and so on. This kind of technical progress has been unleashed with dramatic effect over the last few years and uh, I don't want to pretend that technology is going to provide the solutions to everything. Tough, strong, sensible economic policy is absolutely crucial but uh, the ideas are certainly there. The economic policies that uh, we need I think we have begun to understand as well. This is the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. Um, there are very big effects from emissions of greenhouse gases, but we don't um, deal with them uh, through uh, incentives. I could go on, but basically the story is we've got a good idea of the targets, we can see the areas of action, we can see many of the technologies coming through, and we know the kind of economic policies from prices of carbon in various forms to regulation and standards to promoting uh, new technologies uh, to promoting much more collaborative behavior and so on. These are the kind of policies that we need. So roughly speaking, we know. No is too strong, but I mean, no enough to get started. If, if, let me use no if it's interpreted as no enough to get started well. Uh, so we know the kind of targets we have to ha have. We know the kind of areas we have to act. We know the kind of technologies we're going to need to use, and we know the kind of economic policies which can give the incentive structures. What's missing? Well, the political will to go there and collaborate. So that's key to the whole story. That's what Copenhagen is about. And the last part of what I want to talk about is about that. And I want to express it in a way that focuses on the two defining challenges of overcoming poverty and managing climate change, and the title of the talk in terms of green growth and I'm now talking about a paper which went up on the web at the LSE on Monday which put together with a number of collaborators who are here and which I gave to um, the environmental negotiators for um, uh, Copenhagen who were gathered in a uh, very affluent golf club just north of New York prior to the meetings. Let's, and I'll, I'll, give the, I'll give the simple arithmetic in terms of China, but it's not just China. And you can see when I give the uh, uh, arithmetic, it isn't just China. And I'll point to the kind of numbers for other countries as well. But let's start with the assumption that uh, China and India and other parts of the developing world um, have the challenge of overcoming poverty and that growth will be a big part, not the only part, but growth will be a big part of the response to overcoming poverty. And let's suppose that China and India, um, different assumptions for other parts of the world based on historical experience over the last decade or so, but let's suppose that China and India uh, are going to continue to grow at 7% for the next two decades. 7% not so far away from historical experience, a bit more modest than China has experienced, but also 7% has the virtue of being easy to do for arithmetic. 7% that... 7% doubles in a decade. Yeah? Two decades of 7% growth multiplied by four. China's total emissions now are eight uh, gigatons per annum CO2 equivalent. So what if China grew at 7% and emissions per unit of output stayed constant? Well, eight multiplied by four. 32, I hear you cry. What's the total that you, number you wrote down a little while ago? 35. For the total for the world for 2030. It is clearly not feasible to satisfy our global carbon constraints and for China to grow at 7% and to keep emissions per unit of output constant. 
Well, which of those three numbers, growth 7%, carbon budget for the world, emissions per unit of output, which one do we want to break? Well, it's obvious, right? We want to break emissions per unit of output. But what I'm arguing, and just through that basic, simple arithmetic, we're not just going to break it. We've got to make a very, in the sense of, you know, pulling it back in some sense. We've got to actually change it by a factor of four. Now, can that be done? I think the answer is yes. And again, I'll give you another little bit of arithmetic. Um, we, we've got to halve in a decade emissions per unit of output. In other words, multiply by 0.5 emissions per unit of output. Some parts of the world work in five-year plans, two five-year plans in ten years. So what do you got to do if you want to divide by, if you want to multiply by 0.5, in other words, divide by two, if you want to multiply by 0.5 in a decade, then in half a decade, five years, you have to multiply by the square root of 0.5. Now, you all remember what the square root of 0.5 is, the square root, in case a few of you have forgotten, the square root of 0.5 is 0.71. In other words, you've got to cut by 29% emissions per unit of output in a five-year plan. China, in its 11th five-year plan, which runs out at the end of next year, cut emissions per unit of output, sorry, cut energy, or will have cut energy per unit of output by 20%. Well, if it did that again in the 12th five-year plan, cut energy per unit of output by 20% and changed emissions per unit of energy by just 10%, what would it have done? Well, it would multiply by 0.8 for the 20% off energy per unit of output and it would multiply by 0.9 for the 10% off emissions per unit of energy. 0.8 times 0.9 is 0.72, which is a 28% reduction, close enough to the 29% we're talking about. This is possible. It really is possible. But it needs a huge effort. Now, the calculations which we set out in the spreadsheet in the paper that went up in the web, all of you know it's www.lse.ac.uk. The um, <coughs> calculations we set out looked, of course, not just at China, because this is a global total and it looked at the other countries. And if emissions per unit of output in the rich countries divide by four, China divide by four, India divided by two, it's a lot to ask India to divide by two even, given how low India's emissions are, but let's do it anyway because India's big and uh, it all adds up. But if you put all that spreadsheet together, and remember, of course, there are billions of people in the world in countries I have not named, you can more or less uh, provide a story of India growing at 7%, China growing at 7%, India and Indonesia growing at 5%, and the rich countries of the world growing at 2.5%, and you can get the carbon budget satisfied in 2030. But you do need emissions per unit of output in the rich world and in China to be divided by four in 20 years. Now, that sounds a lot, and it is a lot, but as I began the discussion by describing the kind of areas of action, areas of technique. Now, in Wednesday last week, I spoke in New York to a group of investors who, between them, managed 13 trillion of assets. They were gathered because they had very long-term interests in the low-carbon economy, and they saw that as a long-term Investment. I've already given you the examples of the kind of creativity we're finding in industry. We can actually do this. But it does, of course, need decision and determination now and very strong policies. And what happens if we do do this? I think that we're likely, and it, our economics isn't yet good enough to model this uh, too strongly, but we just had a very good seminar from Philippe Aguillon at Harvard showing how these endogenous growth stories could work in this particular context. But what we're likely to do is to set off a process of growth which is as dynamic as any we've seen in economic history precisely because the innovation and investment and change that is necessary is so strong and covers, covers the whole economy. So I think we have to see the costs of climate, costs of mitigation, the costs of reduction rather in the language of investment. There are many investments we have to make. There are major investments we have to make, and we have to look closely at what those investments are.
But I think we can see now that uh, there's enough evidence to suggest that this could launch a very dynamic period of growth. So the transition to the low-carbon economy <clears throat> over the next four, four decades will, I think, if, if we get our policy right, um, be one of the most dynamic periods of growth in human history. And when we get there, when we have this low-carbon growth, which we have to have by 2050, it'll be more energy secure, cleaner, quieter, safer, and uh, more biodiverse. And it will be growth. High-carbon growth will kill itself, first on the very high prices of hydrocarbons, and secondly on the very hostile physical environment, as I described at the beginning, that it would create. So can we get there? Well, the week before last, I spent sitting in China with the people who were working in detail, the economists and the engineers, on the 12th five-year plan. They are working through numbers on the scale that I described. China being China will not commit itself to its 12th five-year plan. I'm not talking about the international commitment now. I'm talking about China's commitment to its own people in its planning process. The 12th five-year plan will be announced after intense debate, which has already started a year from now, and it will be approved, I can confidently forecast, by the, National, by, by the National People's Congress in the early part of 2011, and it then becomes law, and it's followed. And that is not some Chinese treaty signed, it's not some Chinese signature in blood to an international treaty which binds them. This is China's promise to the Chinese people. This is the way it's going to organize itself. And that, I think, will be the prime determinants of whether people deliver on commitments, will be the seriousness and care with which promises are made first to the own, their own people and then, of course, shared internationally and made in the context of other people internationally making corresponding commitments. So what have we seen? Well, I've, uh, Hu, President Hu Jintao gave um, many of us there the talk on Tuesday morning in the UN in New York and he committed China to notable reductions in CO2 per unit of GDP. This is the first time in public that China's spoken directly in this kind of uh, gathering of emissions per unit of GDP. And when a Chinese leader says notable, he means notable. No, big. No, when a, when a, I, I shall not name any European leaders, for example, but notable, notable could, in, could be interpreted as contentless. <laughs> in this case, it surely isn't. And China does not embark on plans unless it understands how it can be done. And that's why it'll take a little while for China to come up with numbers. And those people who are rumoring that China would come up with a number at that huge entire speech, I think, can't possibly have understood very much about the planning process in China. But what was announced, I think, was of great significance. Uh, a friend of many of us, Jairam Ramesh, who's just become the environment minister uh, in India, um, has made some very clear statements about the quantification of the emissions reductions element in the kinds of plans that India is putting together. There's great serious now in India about 20 gigatons of solar by 2020. And what's more, more fundamental, making solar competitive with coal by 2020 without a carbon price. Now, if that happened, that would be of tremendous importance. And it's surely in the interest of the whole world to put a few billion behind, a few billion dollars a year behind India's efforts to do that. The payoff could be enormous. The Japanese Prime Minister in uh, New York, uh, six days after formally he had been confirmed as Prime Minister, <coughs> described Japan's uh, ambition of cutting 25% of uh, overall emissions 1990 to 2020. The first time a Japanese leader has gone anywhere near there. And what's more, he started describing the policy measures they were going to use to get there. Internal cap and trade, feed-in tariffs, and so on. Again, quite specific about, at least in this case, the economic policies that were going to be followed. I think that the problem lies with the United States. It's now 
with all the intentions of the new administration, with all the fantastic team that's put together. There's no other country in the world that has a team, chief scientist in the White House, could have been a neurosurgeon, or, you know, could have been a physicist, nuclear physicist. John Holdren, one of the best climate scientists in the world, is the, climate, is the si chief scientific advisor in the White House. Steve Chu, Nobel Prize for Physics, great expert on energy, is Secretary of Energy. Carol Browner, a very tough, uh, effective, experienced person in charge of the Environment Protection Agency in the US. Todd Stern and Jonathan um, Pershing, two people who've been involved in the analysis of what's involved, uh, 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 of what we need to do on climate for years and years, far longer th than many of us. That is an extraordinary team. The problem is US politics, and the question is, can they deliver enough in time? Now, Waxman-Markey is a major step forward, but it would bring um, US emissions down in 2020 to roughly where they were in, uh, in 1990, because there's been a lot of rise since then and it won't it probably won't be there ahead of Copenhagen so we have to try to find a way through um, no one wants to argue that the US doesn't have a great deal to do but at the same time one has to argue understand the constraints of US politics as you have to understand the constraints of Indian politics and Chinese politics and European politics European politics over the next year or so ain't going to be easy but what we've got to do is to go into these uh, discussions in Copenhagen with an understanding of what can be done and with a really positive view of how valuable it would be and how exciting and creative it would be and that we could rise to these two, uh, prob two defining problems of our century with the right kind of agreement and the right kind of policy. And we may not be very far away from there. The kind of number we ought to be thinking about for 2020 for the world is around 44 gigatons. If you look at the uh, kind of intentions on the table now, if you put together some simple assumptions uh, on announced policies in Europe, which has their targets, on announced policies in Japan, which has their targets, on the kind of policies which are already uh, being pursued and roll them forward, in China, if you look at India's announced um, measures and its climate change action plan and some of the more recent ideas on solar, if you, put all, and in, if you include Waxman-Markey, if you put all those together, we may be um, reducing something like 56 or 57 gigatons from business as usual in 2020 down to about 48 or 49. We've got four or five gigatons to go in that kind of agreement. This isn't impossible either in terms of international discussion or in terms of technology or in terms of economic policy. What it needs is very strong enlightened leadership around the world. It needs very strong pressure from those who are not leaders uh, around uh, the world and it needs a spirit of collaboration which is greater than we've ever seen I think in the past but with, which is actually a fundamental necessity for this problem. Thank you. Well, now it's time for your test. Um, for those who haven't got pencils and paper, the stewards will bring them round. And uh, those numbers, you know, uh, we're just going to go through now. Um, Actually, we've just got time for a few questions, and I think I caught somebody at the third row from the back. Yeah, let's start there. Wait for the microphone to come to you. Say who you are, and off we go. Thanks. Hi. Could you please tell us what does uh, consumption and lifestyle look like in the first world in 2050 with a two-ton per capita carbon emissions, considering that today two tons is roughly equivalent, a little above sub-Saharan Africa, and that essentially everything we eat everything we wear and everything we own is made of and with hydrocarbons. And what I'm really asking essentially is consumer-based capitalism compatible with uh, a long-term human civilization uh, with the natural world? Thanks. I'm going to take two or three. I'll take one right on the front row if you could. 
Uh, Nick, two very uh, brief uh, observations. One is in line with what was asked earlier. When will the world learn to price the use of fossil fuel in a manner which is appropriate and has an adequate premium on its environmental degradation value? Because as long as you have distortionary pricing of fossil fuel in which you subsidize the use of fossil fuel so extensively in the United States and other parts of emerging markets, that's one big thematic worry. The other big worry that I have uh, is when will the dialogue in large developing countries like India, particularly in parliaments, change that this stuff that you are talking about is not a new form of colonialism called environmental colonialism, but that it is possible to harmonize the objectives of growth and poverty alleviation along with the protection of the planet. Don't do what that's doing. <laughs> um, Consumer-based capitalism. Um, as I described the story, um, what we have to do, even actually if we don't grow very much from now, um, because the emissions we have now are so much higher than the world can take, um, what we have to do is to break that link between um, consumption and output on the one hand and emissions on the other. And it means essentially uh, stopping and reversing um, uh, deforestation. Uh, it means in these next two or three decades moving a long way on uh, energy efficiency. But basically it means um, zero carbon energy. And there are alternative sources of energy. We have to go for uh, low till, low water agriculture. But we already know enough, I think, to see that that can be quite uh, productive. The work, you know, in the very long run, the Earth could probably cope between uh, with something between 7 and 10 gigatons, so that 20 in 2050 has to go on down to uh, less than half that in the, very, in the very long run. So basically, whether or not we grow, um, we're going to have to break that link between um, consumption and output and emissions. So the answer to your question will depend on how successful we are in... Um, in actually taking on those things both in terms of economic policy and in terms of technology but I think there's enough evidence that we can really do that will we go on growing forever I don't know as uh, those of you who know me well will, will share with me the um, uh, Woody Allen's uh, interpretation of eternity which is that it's a very long time particularly near the end and <laughs> the question is could we grow and could we decarbonize growth over the next 30 or 40 years? I think the answer to those questions are yes, with the right kind of um, policies. At that point, we'd have learned so much, I think we could return to the question that you're, uh, you're asking. But I think within the story of um, a capitalist-based uh, economies, that with the right kind of policies, we could do it. And that's, uh, that's the challenge. Um, you know, the experience of alternatives to uh, capitalism hasn't been that cheerful and I think it's very important to try to understand how we can get there within the system that we've got because if we can only get there by radical change in the whole system of the way we um, run societies from the point of view of markets if that is necessary I would doubt very much that we could uh, manage to do this now um, N.K. Singh those of you who don't know is should know that N.K. Singh is a, uh, a member of the Rajya Sabha and a very distinguished long-term economic civil servant in, uh, in India. Pricing of fossil fuels is at the moment one of the most outrageously destructive policies that you see around the world. Something like $300 billion of subsidies uh, on uh, hydrocarbons. Yeah? I mean, talk about distorting prices, it's bad enough not having a price on uh, greenhouse gases but we're, we're much, much worse than that as a world in price distortion and uh, 300 billion is uh, you know, within the range of many people's costs of actually just 
of managing the change to low carbon economy in these next uh, few years. So the fundamental part of the story is not only a price for greenhouse gases, but stop subsidizing fossil fuels. And uh, there are quite extraordinarily uh, labyrinthine ways in which that happens in many countries of the world, including the uh, USA. The, um, but very far from only the USA. Um, now, uh, when will parliamentarians around the world understand this story? Well, um, I hope soon, NK, with your help, uh, it will be soon. But I think there is a very powerful democracy and pressure and understanding story here. Um, the, uh, unless there's, and some leaders are visionaries and some leaders are visionaries and effective. Any examples of the, um, the, um, but people in leadership positions, however enlightened they are, and you know, joking aside, there are enlightened leaders on this issue around the world. They have to feel the pressure. Now, um, the appalling John Howard was thrown out by the glorious people of Australia and uh, Kevin Rudd was elected. It's, it's very nice to be back at university. You can sort of say uh, outside... <laughs> um, it was political pressure. It was political pressure, in this case, enhanced by the experience of extended drought. Um, the, the new Japanese Prime Minister and of course the first thing Kevin Rudd did was sign Kyoto the, uh, the new Japanese Prime Minister has come in on very strong policies you have competition in UK politics now on this uh, issue, a very healthy uh, competition I'm not saying that's universal it isn't, but it's a radical change from uh, a few years ago if you look at the opinion polls in the US there's still many people who are not convinced that climate change is a problem but that number is going down uh, you, I've testified three times to Congress in the last couple of years and the re questions ranged from people who told me that the earth was warming to people who actually knew more about the details of this issue than any parliamentarians I've seen anywhere. So I do think you're seeing it uh, change and the parliamentary and the political pressure for action is rising. But there are always this story of change that I described has to be a story of dislocation. It has to be a story of dislocation in the sense of changing to new technologies, new ways of doing things, driven by government policy. And there is going to be pushback. And that's why public pressure and public understanding is so important. It's why leadership from people in business who see the enormous opportunities out there. I mean, China has very clearly seen that it cannot grow strongly in the future by penetrating rich country markets with manufacturers. It's been so successful that the growth there will be much closer to the growth in the rich countries, 2.5% or so. That doesn't give you 7 or 8% growth. And they've seen very clearly that one of the big, not the only one, but one of the big routes to growth in the future will be uh, low-carbon technologies. So it sees huge markets there, and I think it's likely to be uh, the... Uh, before long, arguably on some dimension, it is already a big leader in those markets. Let's take just a couple more uh, quick questions. I'll take one right next to you there. Hi, you mentioned carbon capture as a method of tackling emissions. Having worked... Hello. <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, having worked as an environmental campaigner in the States, I know that uh, there's a lot of reticence amongst the NGO community about carbon capture and sequestration. So I was wondering whether you personally endorse it, and if so, where would you advise we put the carbon? Thank you. Uh, one down here. There, third row. You painted a compelling picture on mitigation, but could you just say a few words about proportionally what sort of effort we should be putting on adaptation, given the risks, please? Okay. Um, and thank you. In answering that question, I'll, I'll complete the last two numbers of the six, which I, in my enthusiasm, I forgot to uh, give you in my six-number description of the global deal. Uh, on CCS, um, carbon capture and sequestration, you... Um, 
I think if you look, just look at the likely role of fossil fuels over the next 20 or 30 years, um, particularly coal for electricity generation around the world, that unless we get good at it quickly, the problem is going to be much more difficult. I don't want to say that it's insoluble unless we do, but it'll be much more difficult to uh, tackle these problems unless we get good at carbon capture and storage. And we have to know within the next 10 years whether we're able to do that on a commercial scale. We do know that you can do it in prototypes. It's been done in prototypes now for uh, some time. And uh, it's, it's been used for a long time to get uh, extra oil and gas out of oil fields by putting CO2 back into them. So we know that it can work on a minor scale. We don't yet know if it can work on a major scale. On that, all I can do is talk to the technologists who know how to uh, capture it, and they do, um, and also to the geologists who think they know how to store it. And um, they, as I say, I'm, not, I'm neither of those. I'm neither, you know, the the engineer who captures it, nor the geologist who understanding how to store it. But I do talk to them a lot, of course, and um, they are quite optimistic that you can store quite effectively. Um, you know, what if you stored and um, four or five percent got out? You know, some of it might, in a complicated ways over a long period of time, leak. Well, you're still a lot better. You know, you've got 95 percent of. Uh, of that story. But we do have to know and we do have to experiment and develop the prototypes and we'll probably need about 30 commercial scale prototypes over the next 10 years given the different kinds of coal, given the different kinds of you can do it pre-combustion, post-combustion given the different kinds of geology. In order to get that understanding I think we're going to need 30 or so prototypes quickly. So I think I would guess that it is going to work but we've got to find out much more than that and the only way to do it is to look at prototypes. Uh, it's not for me to go around blessing different forms of technology I and mean, I do think that we're going to need many forms of technology um, including CCS and nuclear and biofuels but I do think that uh, the strongest potential is likely over the years to be in solar and the technical progress is most rapid there. But we've got to get from here to there and I think that CCS will be an important step along, uh, along the way. Um, you're quite right to pull me up on adaptation. We are going to need to adapt very substantially. I did mention Mauritius is already preparing to evacuate uh, the country. Um, and they're not the only island state in the Pacific that uh, is doing that. And that's just on 0.8 degrees centigrade. You know, the, what we've seen far, far less than than what we risk, then we probably will go to two degrees centigrade or thereabouts, and there'll be much bigger change in the uh, one to two degrees centigrade than we've seen in the naught to one degree centigrade that we've experienced uh, up to now. It will need um, great investment in uh, irrigation, uh, in different ways of tilling different crops, but it will also need great investment in urban infrastructure as well water supplies will be uh, under threat. We're going to have to air condition the London underground, uh, build bigger sewers because uh, the extra rainfall in London in the winter will be more than the sewers can take. So those of you who have been enjoying digging up London for the uh, freshwater pipes look forward to the digging up of London for the bigger uh, sewage, sewage pipes. And we're going to have to invest much more in London's flood defences. I'm pretty confident it would be okay for the 2012 Olympics, but, uh, uh, which is, of course, all in a floodplain. Um, the, I mean, that's just an example of infrastructure. In, we, have to, we have to air condition the underground, which is quite difficult given the tightness of the tubes, the trains in the tube tunnels. So this is just one city which is less fiercely affected by climate change. The estimates of um, the UNDP and the Human Development Report that published just before Bali two, two years ago, the Bali conference of the UNFCCC two years ago, suggested something like $85 billion a year extra uh, uh, to meet Millennium Development Goals over and above the calculations that were made at the time of the Financing for Development Conference in Monterey in 2002. My guess is that was being the right ballpark for 2015. If you run that forward, of course, it's more, it gets more difficult 
So I've been using, as have others, numbers around $100 billion uh, a year from the early 2020s to help with, not cover all of, but to help with adaptation. That's the fifth of the six numbers. You remember 50, 35, 20, 80%, $100 billion a year for adaptation by the 2020s, and another $100 billion for help with mitigation. And again, that's roughly bottom-up numbers um, using calculations like International Energy Agency or McKinsey's and so on. It's probably the case that a big part of the mitigation numbers could come from carbon markets. Probably the big majority of that $100 billion could come from the carbon markets. The adaptation one couldn't come from the carbon markets. It's a, it's a different argument, different status, but that's uh, just as necessary. So that's the global deal in six numbers. 50, 35, 20 for the gigatons for 2010, 2030, 2050. 80% reductions, 19, at least 1990 to 2050 for the rich countries. 100 billion a year by the 2020s for adaptation. 100 billion for mitigation, but most of that flowing through the carbon markets. You don't need 200 pages, but um, that's what I would mean by a framework outcome for Copenhagen. Thank you. I'm sad to say that we are at the end of our time because this theatre is in use very shortly. Um, thank you very much for coming, and thanks to Nick for a very good briefing. <laughs>